Today I'm continuing to teach on a subject that I've entitled Christian Philosophy. I've covered a lot of really important things here. We've been making the point that Satan tries to come against us through our philosophy, which is describing a system of thought or a way of thinking, a paradigm, a worldview. And most people don't understand how important it is to have foundational uh, philosophies how you need to establish certain things. So we've been talking about this. We've talked about how that you need to have the philosophy, the firm conviction and belief that the Word of God is absolutely true. It's up to date. It's God's direction for us. If we would do that, it would just diffuse all of Satan's bombs that he throws our way. Nothing could stick to us if you just really put God's Word first place. We've talked about how that you have to have a commitment that Jesus is absolute Lord There's only one God, and you aren't Him. And so quit trying to run your life. Run up a white flag and submit yourself to the authority of God over you. If you would do that, it would stop Satan in your life. Then this last uh, four days, we've been talking about how you need to have an intimate, personal relationship with God. And that just needs to be a philosophy, a way of thinking. This ought to be the most important thing in your life is personal relationship with God. And we've gone back to Genesis chapter 3, and I've been taking all of these things that I've been saying from the example of Adam and Eve. And in the example of Adam and Eve, these are things that they failed to do. They failed to put God's Word first. They fail to make God the absolute Lord and dictator over their life, but instead they tried to run their own life. They fail to have an intimate relationship with God. And because of that, even though they knew about God and they talked to Him every day, they really didn't know God personally. And because of that, that's the reason they fell prey to this lie that Satan had given them about that God didn't love them and that God was holding something good back from them. That wasn't true. And so God's character was assailed by Satan and Adam and Eve didn't know God well enough to know that he wasn't like that. And so they bought into his lie and they wound up eating of the forbidden fruit and destroyed their lives and ours because of what they did. Now here's another point that I want to bring out and that is that when Satan criticized God and said he really doesn't love you, he's keeping this from you because he doesn't want you to reach your full potential. Another thing that they were doing, they were actually coming against the very nature and the very character of God. Now this is a close um, counterpart to what I've just been teaching about they didn't have a personal relationship with God to where they knew him. I want to just focus on trying to correct some misunderstanding about the nature and the character of God. Now, you see right here in Genesis chapter 3 that Satan assailed the character of God. And he said in verse 5, For God doth know that in the day you eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and you shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. Satan criticized the nature of God and basically made it out that God didn't have their best interest in mind that God was actually operating in selfishness, that God didn't care about them. He was trying to withhold something from them. So Satan was slandering God. And let me just say something right here that's going to shock some of you, but Satan is still slandering God today, and the number one way he does it is through religion. He has misrepresented the very nature and the character of God, and there's just a hundred things here 
that I could be talking about. I'm going to focus in on just one thing. And I'm going to talk about how that God has been presented as an angry God, a violent God, and that God hates our sins so much that He's liable to just kill you with some sickness or disease, that He's liable to judge an entire nation. You know, right now we're going through some things about this Hurricane Katrina that came through and the effect that it had on New Orleans and Mississippi and the thousands of people who are dead and the devastation. There's a lot of Christian leaders. I would say in the majority of churches, they're saying that God did this, that this was God's judgment and God's punishment. Did you know things like that present a wrong picture of what God is like to people? And it is so prevalent in our society today that even in contracts, I mean legal contracts, they will, you know, if you're doing an insurance type of thing, they will say that this uh, covers you under this and this and this, but it exempts acts of God, such as hurricanes, tornadoes, floods, fires. And they, I mean, in the secular realm, they have just accepted it, assumed that God is the source of all of these problems that nothing happens but what God allows. Those are all wrong things. These are still slanderous statements that Satan is fabricating, and the number one place he promotes it is through the church. I believe that if you were to take a poll of church people and non-church people and ask them about why Hurricane Katrina happened, did you know that the average non-church person would write it up as being just an act of nature. It's just coincidental. It's just something that happened. But you ask the average Christian, and I guarantee you the vast majority of them are going to blame God for this thing. In that sense, non-church people, I believe, have a better view of God than some of the church people do. Now, I know I'm talking to all kinds of people all around the world, and some of you are just choking on what I'm saying. And say, But God does control all of this. This is God's judgment. I'm going to be showing you things from Scripture that this is not God's judgment. And people are going to be able to quote Scriptures. I just recently, last night, I went through a thing where a person was talking about this Hurricane Katrina and talking about this being the judgment and the wrath of God. And he was specifically countering people who say that hurricanes and stuff like this are not the wrath of God. And he took multiple scriptures, many, 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 many scriptures about the wrath of God, the justice of God, the holiness of God, and how that there was punishment upon sinners. And he even used the logic that, you know, the scripture says we're saved from the wrath to come. If God doesn't have wrath, how could there be wrath to come? And he was making all of these points. But what he was doing, see, he was missing the fact that in the Old Covenant, under the Old Covenant, it was a dispensation or a period of time where God's wrath was revealed and God was judging people. In the New Testament, God put His wrath upon Jesus and now during this church age or this church dispensation, we aren't experiencing the wrath of God. God is not the author of our problems. And then in the future, yes, in the book of Revelation... And when the new heaven and the new earth comes, He's going to judge people. People will be cast into a lake of fire. There's going to be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And yes, wrath, anger, holiness, justice is a part of God. And there are Old Testament examples of where it was vented 
And I mean very strongly the destruction of uh, the world during the days of Noah, Sodom and Gomorrah. Under the old covenant law, people were struck with leprosy. The death angel went out. This is prior to the Old Testament law, but during the Exodus, the death angel went out and killed all the firstborn. Uh, During the days of the king, an angel killed 186,000 Syrians who had come against Egypt, I mean against Israel. And you see all of these displays of the wrath of God. But in the New Testament, you see Jesus doing just the opposite and showing us a mercy and a grace of God. So I am not saying that God isn't holy and that there isn't wrath. There has been wrath demonstrated in the past. It is a promise that wrath is coming in the future. But I am saying this, under the new covenant, God is not displaying and releasing His wrath the way that He has or the way that He's going to. And for those who are under the covenant, now there is a 100% exemption from the wrath of God. For those who are outside of the covenant, even though we live in this day of grace, there can be tragedy and there could even be a judgment of God come upon people. I'm going to be trying to explain all of this. But some of these ideas about God being an angry God and God ready to get us and blaming God for everything that happens. Some of these ideas, actually, like I was saying earlier, come from the Bible and therefore church people have had this misrepresented to them. They haven't really understood this. And church people are more into believing in the anger and the wrath and the rejection of God than non-church people. Because some of these concepts come... now. I don't know how to say this. There are some things in the Bible that the way they've been presented give us an inaccurate picture of the nature of God. Now, I'm not saying that the Bible is inaccurate. I'm just saying the way it's been interpreted and applied is inaccurate. And you can see this in a lot of different ways. In the days of Jesus, the religious Pharisees, they claimed to be standing on Scripture But they had taken individual truths and had blown them out of proportion and they were legalistic. For instance, they had taken such a thing as the Scripture taught that we were supposed to observe the Sabbath and not do work on the Sabbath. Well, they had taken that little grain of truth and had magnified this thing to such a degree that they had dozens and dozens, maybe hundreds of laws about what could and could not be done. There was actually a group of people called the Essens. It was a religious order during the time of Jesus. Most people believe that that's who John the Baptist grew up with out in the desert. They're the people that wrote the Dead Sea Scrolls and put them in those uh, caves around the Dead Sea. And these, this group of people called the Essens, I've actually read some of the manuscripts written about them. And these people observed the Sabbath so strictly that you couldn't have a bowel movement on the Sabbath day. Now, I don't know exactly how they controlled all of this. I don't know how they enforced it, but that was their religious system. And the Pharisees of Jesus' day had counted how many steps you could take on one day. They had all of these things. Now, that was based on something that God had said, but it was a total misapplication of it. And Jesus came along and showed us that the Sabbath wasn't made I mean, man wasn't made for the Sabbath, but the Sabbath was made for man, that they had misinterpreted it. Then over in the book of Hebrews chapter 4, there's a whole explanation about how that the Sabbath was a picture 
Colossians chapter 2, verses 16 and 17 also make that point. That there, the Sabbath was a picture of a New Testament relationship with God. It was never intended to be a strict observance of just a day, a ritualistic thing. It was a type and a shadow, a picture of a New Testament relationship. There's a lot of people that have missed that today. And yet they got these concepts from the Bible. But they were wrong. Not the Bible itself, but the way it had been taught. So what I want to do is go back to Scripture and challenge some of the thoughts, some of the philosophies that religion has developed about God's hatred and anger and wrath towards men. Now, we've been teaching from Genesis chapter 3, and I want to go right back to this, talking about the temptation of Adam and Eve and their transgression. But after they sinned, God appeared unto them, and of course there was a discussion between them, and God said, what have you done? And Adam said, it's my, that wife that you gave me, and then the woman pointed to the serpent, and the serpent didn't have anybody else to point to. So God judged the serpent, judged the woman, and judged uh, Adam. And there were consequences to their sin. But overall, instead of the Lord turning Adam and Eve into a pile of ashes and just bringing His wrath on them and blasting them, instead, He extended mercy towards these people. He actually made... They had made, uh, you know, they took fig leaves and sewed them together and tried to cover their nakedness. And it was, I'm sure, a shabby job. But God uh, improved on their clothing. He actually took an animal and sacrificed it and then covered their nakedness with the skins of these animals. And so the Lord was extending mercy towards mankind instead of just judgment. Now there was consequences for their sin, but overall it was mercy. The Lord didn't just blast them. And here's one of the main points that I want to make. Most people believe that when Adam and Eve sinned, that God was holy Now man had become unholy and there could be no fellowship between holy God and unholy man. So therefore God expelled Adam and Eve from the Garden of Eden because he couldn't stand them in their fallen state. There could be no fellowship, no relationship between holy God and unholy man. That is not what the Word of God teaches. Let me go to these very passages of Scripture in Genesis chapter 3. And it says in verse 21, Unto Adam also and to his wife did the Lord God make coats of skins and clothed them. And the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become as one of us to know good and evil. And now, lest he put forth his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him forth from the garden of Eden to till the ground from whence he was taken. In verse 23, it says, Therefore, the Lord sent man from the garden. When you see the word therefore, you're supposed to look and see what it's there for. In other words, because of what was said in the previous verse, this is the reason God sent Adam and Eve out of the garden. What does it say in verse 22? It says, The Lord God said, Behold, the man has become as one of us to know good and evil, and now, lest he put forth his hand. Here's the reason that he sent them out of the garden. Lest he put forth his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, for that reason, this is why God sent Adam and Eve out of the garden. Most people believe that holy God now hated man. Now, he may have had some pity on them to the point that he was still going to have 
some dealings with them. There was a promise of salvation coming thousands of years later, but basically God hated unholy man and punished them and kicked them out and separated him from his presence because he couldn't stand them. That's not what this says. This says the reason he sent Adam and Eve out of the garden was so they wouldn't put forth their hand, take of this tree of life, eat it, and live forever. Now, some people would say, but well, that's the same thing. He didn't want, he was trying to keep us back from something that could cause us to live forever. This was punishment. This was judgment. You know, this was actually love in action. I don't fully understand the tree of life. The scripture doesn't spend a lot of time explaining it. But just as the tree of the knowledge of good and evil instantly caused Adam and Eve to have a conscience, to know right and wrong, to begin to start condemning themselves, feel fear, and all of these things. This tree was more than just a physical thing. It had spiritual, emotional consequences to it. And this tree of life, when you ate of it, it would have allowed you immortality in a sinful body. Now think about what this means. Just think about, say for instance, because of sin and the corruption that entered the earth, we now have sickness, disease, we have deformities, we have such things as amputations, people have chemical spills on them, they get things happen that are deformities now, they're stained, they've got, uh, you know, terrible things happen to them. If you somehow or another ate of the tree of life and lived forever, and yet you lived forever with a deformity, say for instance, mental retardation, What if every person who has ever been born on the face of the earth was still alive and every retarded person, every person who was born a vegetable was still in that state? They couldn't die, but they were corrupted by sin and they couldn't live. I can't even wrap my brain around what it would be like to have millions and millions and millions of people who are mentally retarded, deformed, incapable of producing and yet incapable of dying? What would it be like to have people like Hitler, Mussolini, Stalin, all of these terrorist people that we've had that have done terrible tragedy? What would it be like if these people couldn't die? Could you imagine a person with Alzheimer's that can't even remember their husband or their wife or their children and they do all of these weird things and yet they can't die because they had taken of the tree of life and eaten and and lived forever? Could you imagine living forever in that kind of state? Could you imagine living forever in a situation where maybe you were a slave and there was no way out of it forever and ever and ever and ever and ever that you were always going to be a slave? Could you imagine some of the terrible things that have happened where people were put in these death camps and yet you couldn't die? and you were just forever oppressed? As bad as some people think death is, death and then the promise of a new life and all of the things that Jesus has purchased for us is better than living forever in this fallen state. You know, I usually don't refer to movies and stuff, but the most graphic illustration I think I've ever seen of this was a movie entitled Tuck Everlasting. And I saw this, and anyway, it's a long story, but these people drank of this fountain, and they couldn't die. They were hundreds of years old. Everybody else around them was dying, but they couldn't die. And um, 
there was a man that came in that tried to find this water and, and uh, drink of it, but he was an evil man, and he was going to commercialize this and do a lot of damage. And as you were watching this movie, you were thinking, no, you don't want him to get hold of this. And basically, the way that he was kept from reaching this water and, and becoming immortal is the fact that he was killed. And, and you look at that and you think, you know what? Death is actually a positive thing. If there wasn't death, then people like Hitler, Mussolini, all these people would still be living and still be causing all of these problems. And, you know, death for us, because God has prepared something better where we're going to resurrect and we're going to get a glorified body and we're going to live forever with the Lord, death is not really uh, a bad thing. It is in one sense, but if you look at things as an overall view... It is an entryway into something better. God had something better planned than man living forever in a fallen, unregenerate state. So instead of God kicking Adam and Eve out of the garden because he hated them and he couldn't fellowship with them the way that we have been taught, that's the philosophy that most people have. Instead, the Lord drove Adam and Eve out of the garden because he loved them. And he knew that now they were subject to corruption, that Terrible things were going to start operating in the human race and he didn't want people living forever in a fallen state subject to death and all of the things that Satan does, not just physical death, but emotional, spiritual death. And he had something better planned and that's the reason that he drove Adam and Eve out of the garden. He did not separate them from his presence. And to prove this, look in the fourth chapter of the book of Genesis. In the fourth chapter, you find God still talking with man, not just in their hearts the way that we hear it today, but in an audible voice, God was still walking and talking with man. You see a familiarity with God among the people in the fourth chapter that shows that this wasn't a seldom occurrence. It was something that happened on a regular basis. In other words, what's the difference between Genesis chapter 3 and Genesis chapter 4? Once sin came in, you know what the major difference was? A change of location. Not the fact that God wasn't fellowshipping with them, that God had withdrawn from them. You don't see that. Instead, you see just the opposite. God is still talking and fellowshipping and communing with man. In Genesis chapter 4, in verse 3, it says, And in the process of time it came to pass that Cain brought of the fruit of the ground an offering to the Lord. And Abel he also brought of the firstlings of his flock and of the fat thereof. And the Lord had respect unto Abel and to his offering. Now I want you to think about something. I know that this is terrible to ask you to think. Most people, when you're listening to a preacher, you don't want to think. You want to be entertained. <laughs> but think. Use your head for something besides a hat rack. This will really make a difference in your life. How did God show respect for Abel's offering and show disrespect for Cain's offering. Now, the scripture here doesn't spell it out. And so I can't say authoritatively, but in the context, as you go on in just the very next verse, God spoke to Cain in an audible voice. Cain talked back to God, then God came back and talked to him later. And the audible voice of God that was the way that God communicated with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. Here we are in the fourth chapter after the expulsion from the garden and he's still talking to man in an audible voice. 
I don't know that I can say emphatically, but it looks like that the way God showed respect unto Abel in his offering and showed disrespect to Cain's offering is that he talked to him. He was still talking to him the same as he talked to him in the third chapter, the same as he talked to him when they were in the Garden of Eden. The only thing that had changed was a location. Their location had changed, but God was still in being gracious unto man, and he was still visiting and fellowshipping with man. In verse 5 it says, But unto Cain and to his offering he had not respect, and Cain was very wroth, and his countenance fell. And the Lord said unto Cain, There is no reason to believe that this is anything except an audible voice of God. This isn't something that just happened in their heart. They weren't born again. They didn't have the Spirit of God living on the inside of them. They didn't hear it from the inside. They heard it from the outside. God said in an audible voice unto Cain, Why are you wroth? Why is thy countenance fallen? If thou doest well, thou shalt, shalt thou not be accepted. And if thou doest not well, sin lieth at the door, and unto thee shall be his desire, and thou shalt rule over him. And Cain talked with Abel his brother, and it came to pass when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel his brother and slew him. And the Lord said unto Cain, Where is Abel thy brother? And he said, I know not. Am I my brother's keeper? Now this is another awesome thing if you would just think. Here is the first murderer on the face of the earth. This isn't a person who had been conditioned to murder. And like the typical teenager today, I've heard said that they see in excess of 250,000 brutal murders on television by the time they leave home. This Cain wasn't a person that had seen lots of murders. This is the first murder to ever take place on the face of the earth. This man hadn't been desensitized, hardened towards murder. Here's the first murderer on the face of the earth, still had the blood on his hands from his brother's life. And while the blood was still fresh, an audible voice out of heaven says, Where is Abel, your brother? Now, let me ask you. You have been exposed to murder. You have been hardened and desensitized to a degree, much more so than what Cain had been. And yet, if you were to murder a person, and while you still had their blood fresh on your hands, if you heard an audible voice from God out of heaven, what would you do? I guarantee you, most people wouldn't have to be prosecuted. You'd die of a heart attack right there. You'd just be dead. <laughs> if you heard an audible voice come out of heaven, what have you just done? That'd be it. You'd be dead. But what did Cain do? Cain just like stuck his hands behind his back, tried to hide him from God, says, I don't know. He just lied to God's audible voice. You know what that says? That says he was very familiar with God's audible voice. We have a saying that familiarity breeds contempt. And that's exactly true. And Cain, by his reaction to God speaking in an audible voice, the moment after he had killed his brother, his reaction shows that he was very used to hearing the voice of God. It didn't startle him. It didn't surprise him. It wasn't out of the normal. You know what this is saying? That God was still walking and talking with sinful men outside of the garden just the way that he did with sinless men in the garden. God did not separate us from His presence. He did not drive us out from fellowship and relationship with Him. Even though we deserved it, that isn't the nature of God. You need to recognize that God didn't separate man from His presence, but rather man separated God 
from His presence. It was not God that withdrew from man. It was man that withdrew from God. Now, God did kick Adam and Eve out of the garden, but as it says in Genesis 3, 22 and 23, it wasn't to separate Himself from them, but to separate them from this tree of life so they wouldn't live forever in a corrupted state. God had a better plan. And so you see this very first person in Genesis chapter 4 who killed a person. Now, under the Old Testament law, the commandments, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not commit adultery, if you broke one of those laws, it was prescribed in the law that you had to kill that person, and if you didn't kill them, you could be killed. In other words, God wanted His laws enforced. But right here, here is the first murderer on the face of the earth, and how did God respond to him? It goes on to say, in uh, verse 8, Cain talked with Abel his brother, and it came to pass when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel his brother and slew him. And the Lord said unto Cain, Where is Abel thy brother? And he said, I know not. Am I my brother's keeper? And he said, God said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood crieth unto me from the ground. And now art thou cursed from the earth, which hath opened her mouth to receive thy brother's blood from thine hand. When thou tillest the ground, it shall not henceforth yield unto thee her strength. A fugitive and a vagabond shalt thou be in the earth. And Cain said unto the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Now God did judge Cain, but not with the wrath and the severity that we see under the Old Testament law. In contrast with this, if you were to put this together with... I'm not exactly sure where this is. I think it's Numbers chapter... 16, I may have missed that, but anyway, uh, the very first time that a person picked up sticks on the Sabbath day and broke the Sabbath law about not working, he just picked up some sticks so that he could go and build a fire and fix some food. And he was uh, found, they turned him into Moses, Moses went before the Lord, and the Lord answered in an audible voice and said, stone him to death, show him no mercy. So the very first person to violate the law was a person who just gathered some sticks to cook a meal. And he was put to death. Here's the very first person after Adam and Eve that had killed a person, and how did God respond to him? Yes, there was some punishment. The earth wasn't going to yield its strength. I believe that basically what the Lord was doing, he didn't want people to think that there weren't consequences to their sin. So it would be like we correct our child. You give them a spanking, but that's not the same as cutting their head off. There was a punishment, there was a correction, but it wasn't total rejection and punishment. God extended mercy towards Cain because when Cain heard that he wasn't going to, the earth wasn't going to yield its strength to him anymore, Cain said this, he says, Behold, thou hast driven me out this day from the face of the earth, and from thy face shall I be hid, and I shall be a fugitive and a vagabond in the earth, and it shall come to pass that everyone that findeth me shall slay me. In other words, Cain was lamenting his situation, and in verse 15 it says, The Lord said unto him, Therefore, whosoever slayeth Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord shall set a mark upon Cain, lest any finding him should kill him. And so God put some kind of a visible mark in Cain's forehead and said, If anybody tries to take vengeance on Cain for what he did to Abel, I'll take vengeance on Cain sevenfold. I'll... I'll punish you seven times more. God protected the first murderer on the face of the earth. 
But under the time of the law, the very first person who broke the Sabbath law and picked up sticks to cook a meal was put to death. Now, can you tell that there's a difference between those two? Can you tell that picking up sticks on the Sabbath day isn't near as severe from our standpoint as murdering your brother? And yet the person who murdered his brother was granted protection and mercy. The person who picked up sticks to cook a meal was shown no mercy whatsoever. Now what I'm trying to do is present to you that, see, people have mixed this Old Testament law, the harshness and the wrath that came through the Old Testament law, and they have transposed that all the way back to the Garden of Eden and said, this is what God was doing. Holy God was judging man and driving him out from their presence because they couldn't stand him. When that's not true. I've gone to some expense or some effort here to show you that God drove Adam and Eve out of the garden not because He didn't love them or want to fellowship with them. He didn't want them eating of the tree of life and living forever. He had a better plan for them. He was still walking and talking with men. And Adam, I mean, uh, Cain and Abel's reaction to the audible voice of God illustrates that. And then look at this. In the 16th verse of Genesis chapter 4, it says, Cain went out from the presence of the Lord and dwelt in the land of Nod on the east of Eden. How could Cain leave something that he didn't have? If they didn't have the presence of the Lord, if God wasn't still fellowshipping with Adam and Eve, how could Cain leave? The answer to that is he couldn't. God was still walking and talking and fellowshipping with man. Now there was a difference... God had to deal with people differently to a degree. He separated them from the tree of life. He didn't want them anymore having access to that. And so there was a judgment and a punishment. He did give consequences to Cain's sin. The earth wouldn't bring forth its strength anymore. But that was like a correction, a spanking. It was an absolute judgment, like just put them to death as prescribed under the Old Testament law. As a whole, God was dealing with mankind in mercy And it says over in Romans chapter 5, verse 13, that until the time of the law, God was not imputing man's sins unto them. He was not holding man's sins against them. Now again, this is a different paradigm, a different philosophy than what religion is teaching. Religion is teaching that holy God just separated himself from man and judgment came upon man because they see God as a wrathful, vengeful Holy God. Well, God is holy and He does have wrath, but that wasn't His first reaction. His first reaction was mercy, even towards the first murderer on the face of the earth. There was a period of time when the law was given from about somewhere around 2,000 2000 years after the fall until the time that Jesus came, which was approximately 1,800 years. There was this period of time where wrath was vented. But then, now that Jesus has come, He took our wrath and we are living there in a period of time, about 2,000 years, where God hasn't been judging people and putting His wrath upon them. And there is coming a future time when He comes back when, once again, those who have rejected His offer of mercy and His gift of salvation will experience the wrath and the judgment of God. God does have wrath. God is holy. But... It wasn't immediately vented on the human race because that is the true heart and nature of God. It was only given for a very temporary period of time. 
and now we are living in a day of grace? If you don't understand these things properly, if you take the Old Testament wrath and punishment upon uh, sin and transpose that all the way back to the Garden of Eden, it gives a impression. It, it relates a philosophy about what you think God is like that is inaccurate according to the Scripture. And that needs to be changed. That is not accurate. I know that I misunderstood it. I was raised in church, and I was raised with a false concept, a false philosophy, and thinking that God was the one who killed my father when I was 12 years old, thinking that God was the one who brought tragedy in our lives, that God was the author of hurricanes and tornadoes and diseases and things like that. That's not true. And if you believe that, that's going to give you a wrong impression about God that is going to hinder your relationship. You know, if you blame me, if you, if you said about me the things people say about God, I guarantee you, you wouldn't think very much of me and you wouldn't want to get close to me and you wouldn't want to spend time around me if you thought I was going to give you cancer or AIDS or kill your mate or cause your child to be retarded. If that's the way that I did things, I guarantee you, I wouldn't have very many friends. Well, that's one of the reasons that God doesn't have very many people that hang out with Him because He's been lied about and, and misrepresented so much. You know, when I was a kid, here, here's an illustration that some of you aren't old enough to remember this. Some of you probably can. But when I was a kid, I remember that I used to watch with my parents this show, What's My Line? And they would have three people come and sign in and they would say, I'm... Jane Doe or whoever, you know, just some person. And all three people would claim to be this one person. And then they would sit down and a panel of, I think, four people would ask them questions. And depending on how they asked the questions, they would try and guess who was the real Jane Doe or whoever. And so after the, you know, they'd asked all these questions, the time was up, they, the uh, moderator would say, will the real Jane Doe or whoever stand up? And one person would start to stand up and then another one and you'd go back and forth and finally the real person would stand up. But you know, in a sense, uh, that's kind of the way that I feel about a lot of people are about God. Will the real God please stand up? Is it going to be the God that Jesus represented to where in the 8th chapter of the book of John, Jesus had a woman brought to him who was taken in the very act of adultery. And according to Leviticus chapter 20, if you caught people in the act of adultery, both the man and the woman had to be stoned to death. And so here was Jesus with a woman brought to him. And they said, should we stone this person to death or should we let her go free? Now the reason that the scribes and the Pharisees did this is because they saw an opportunity to entrap Jesus. If he enforced the law and stoned this woman to death the way that the law prescribed, all of his followers who were drawn to him because he was preaching mercy and grace would leave him. But if he didn't stone her to death, then they had the right to stone him to death according to the law. They thought they had him either way. And of course, the wisdom of God... I mean, even the foolishness of God is better than the wisdom of man. Jesus just simply, he didn't say that she wasn't wrong. He didn't say that what she did was right. He just simply said, let him that's without sin cast the first stone. And they all got convicted by their own conscience and they left. And so he was able to extend mercy to her without violating 
the Old Testament precepts of the law. But see, now that is an example of mercy and grace by Jesus. In the Old Testament law, you find a man who picks up sticks on the Sabbath day to fix a meal. And because he broke the Sabbath, kill him, show him no mercy. And just wrath and punishment and judgment. The leprosy of God came up in the forehead of Uzziah and Miriam. And death angels went out and struck people and there was wrath and there was punishment. Now see, some people just kind of blend all of this together and they think that it's just all one representation of God. And in a sense, they, they see him as being schizophrenic. You don't know if today he's going to be the God of Jesus that shows mercy towards a, a person taken in the very act of adultery. Or is it going to be the God of the Old Testament that kills people for picking up sticks and fixing a fire? Will a real God please stand up? Which way is it? Well, I tell you, there's a very clear explanation of this. There are other materials that I have available, a book, teachings, and other things on the nature of God that will go into at least four and a half hours if you get just one of the albums, or I've got multiple albums that will deal with this in more depth. But basically, I'm trying to summarize that when Adam and Eve first sinned, God extended mercy towards them, and I spent quite a bit of time showing that out of Genesis 3 and 4. And all the way up until the time that the law was given through Moses... God was dealing with mankind in mercy. It says that over in Romans chapter 5. Let me turn over and read this to you. Romans chapter 5 and verse 13. It says, For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. The word impute means to lay to your account. Did you know prior to the time that Moses came and brought the law, uh, there were many examples of the mercy of God. For instance, Abraham. Abraham was a great man of faith, but he did some terrible things. He lied about his wife being his wife. He was willing to say, she's my sister. You can do anything you want to with her. He was fearful that somebody was going to kill him to get his wife. So he lied about her and was willing to let other people take his wife and have sexual relationships with her. Now, you know what? If you were to transpose that into today. I guarantee you, and if I was to do that for my wife, if I was afraid somebody was going to kill me to have my wife, and I said, hey, she's my sister, do whatever you want to. You know, that's wrong. That was wrong. That was not the right thing. And yet Abraham was called the friend of God, not because he did everything right, but because he believed God, Genesis chapter 15. And Abraham also married his half-sister. And according to Leviticus chapter 18, if you marry a half-sister, you are to be put to death by stoning. There is no mercy, no grace. Did you know that if Abraham would have lived under the Old Testament law, he should have been stoned to death? But God extended mercy to him because until the time of the law, God wasn't holding men's sins against them. And then uh, Jacob, Abraham's grandson, came along and he married two sisters while the first sister was still alive, which according to Leviticus 18, was punishable by death. And instead of God punishing him, God blessed Jacob, who later became Israel. And he prevailed with God. You know why? Because God wasn't holding that sin against him. If he would have been living under the Old Testament law, he would have been stoned to death. God extended mercy to people for 2,000 years, just about until the time the law came. And then the law gave the wrath of God. Now, why did God do that? Why did God apparently change His dealing with mankind? 
And I'm just summarizing a lot of things. Again, I encourage you to get these materials because I'm saying a lot of things that I don't have time to verify. I wouldn't be able to make this point. But there's a number of things that the law accomplished. Number one, people had been so far removed from what the godly standard of conduct was. Over the hundreds of years, the centuries, they began to start living such perverted lives that people no longer even knew what was right and wrong. So, by God saying, thou shalt not, he brought us back to a proper standard of what right and wrong was. And that was important. But one of the main purposes of the law was it wasn't given. Now, you're going to have to swallow big to be able to handle this. But the law wasn't given primarily for you to keep, but the law was given to show you how incapable of measuring up to God's standards you were so that you would quit trusting in yourself for salvation, thinking that you could become good enough. It raised the bar so high and gave us such a high standard of conduct that it condemned you. It judged you. It released wrath for the purpose of making you recognize that, man, I can't ever stand before a holy God on the basis of anything I've done. I need help. I need a Savior. And in a sense, I'm summarizing what uh, Galatians chapter 3 is saying, that until faith came, we were kept under the law, shut up under the faith which should afterwards be revealed. The law was basically given to beat you down and condemn you and take away all sense of self-righteousness and make you so pitiful that you recognized, I've got to have help. And it would prepare you for the help that God was sending in the Lord Jesus. Now see, religion has perverted that. Religion hasn't given us the philosophy I just expounded, but instead it has given us the philosophy that the law was given because God is really holy and he's mad at you and unless you do this and this and this and this and this, God's not pleased with you. That's not true. Religion has misunderstood this and misrepresented God and they've tried to paint this as the overriding picture of the way God is. And they even go back to the Garden of Eden and say that God was so ticked off when Adam and Eve sinned that he drove them out of the garden because he couldn't fellowship with unholy man. I've already proven that to be untrue by the scriptures in Genesis chapter 3 and chapter 4. Instead, for the first 2,000 years, there was mercy. And then there was a 2,000-year period or just under 2,000 years where God dealt harshly with people's sins. And now through Jesus, we have been delivered from that law And we are now living under a period of time where God is not imputing man's sins unto them. Let me read you a scripture that says this just very clearly. 2 Corinthians in chapter 5 in verse 19, that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. God wasn't holding men's sins against them from the time that Jesus came through our present time. And that's the same message that he wants us to be giving. And yet most people aren't giving this message. Most people are presenting a philosophy, a way of thinking about God that is imputing people's sins unto him. And God is angry and God's judging us. And because of this, they're saying all of these problems in your life are God's judgment on you because you have displeased him. I guarantee you that's not going to endear God to people. That's actually going to drive people from God. And I know that I've got people 
all around the world who believe contrary to what I'm teaching and they're thinking I'm encouraging sin. I'm not encouraging sin. I believe that you can preach against sin in many different ways. You can preach against it because of the natural consequences that come. You go out and have illicit sexual relationships and I guarantee it's like playing Russian roulette with sexual diseases. You're going to destroy families. You're going to bring condemnation and guilt into your own life. You are going to do do terrible things. I mean, you can argue against it from a million directions, but to say that if you do that, God's going to get you and God's going to do this and God's going to cause your marriage to fail and God's going to make you die of some disease, that's a misrepresentation of God. You know what? When my children, when they were young and they did things wrong, sure, I corrected them. But there was one way I had to correct them, and that was to use a little switch or something on their bottom, that place padded that God gave them to get corrected. I didn't slap them upside the head or hit them with cancer or punch them with a knife in their belly. And You know what? All of those things are child abuse. I would have been arrested. I would have been convicted. There's a right and a wrong way to correct. God does correct His children. And according to 1 Timothy chapter 3, nope, it's 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16, it says, All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for uh, uh, instruction in righteousness, that the man of God might be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. The way God corrects us is through His Word. He doesn't correct us with a hurricane, with disease, with sexually transmitted diseases, with your marriage failing, your job failing. That's not God's judgment and punishment. Yes, God corrects us, but it's not punishment. It's not anger. It's not wrath. It's all corrective. There is a right and a wrong way to do it. And religion has presented a picture that paints God as this angry person that's going to slap you, hurt you, destroy you. That's not God. That is not our God. That's a misrepresentation. Now, in the Old Testament, he did judge people harshly. And some people say, well, are you saying that God's schizophrenic, that he was this way? Here's the way that I understand this. Is that when you're a child, if you take your child when they're a year old and try and teach them to share with their brother or their sister and not to be selfish, and if you just try and reason with them, and tell them that if you go over there and take this toy from your brother, then you are yielding to Satan because Satan is the author of all of this selfishness. Satan is the one that does this. Jesus said it's more blessed to give than it is to receive. And if you yield to Satan and allow this selfish attitude to function, then you aren't going to have friends. You're going to be rejected in school. If you get a job, you'll never prosper because all you're going to be thinking about is yourself. If you get married, your marriage is never... See, if you try and reason with a one-year-old and tell him about his marriage and his job and his schooling, they don't have the ability to understand that. You can't tell them about God and the devil. They don't understand all of those concepts. But you know what you can do with a one-year-old? You can go up and say, if you take that toy again, I'm going to spank you. And they may not even know that the devil exists and that they're yielding to the devil if they take that toy. But the next time the thought comes about go take your brother or sister's toy, they'll say no. They'll resist the devil without even realizing what they're doing, not because they understand it all and are able to think it through, but because of fear of punishment. 
And so in a sense, the scripture says in Galatians chapter 3 that until Jesus brought in salvation, that we were like children under the law as our schoolmaster. And so it makes this comparison. Prior to being born again, Old Testament men could not understand the things that a born-again man today can understand. It says that in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, that the natural man cannot receive the things of the Spirit of God. They are foolishness unto him, neither can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. A born-again man has a spiritual capacity to understand things that a lost man doesn't. So before people could be born again, God wanted to restrain the amount of sin, and yet people, because God wasn't punishing sin, because He was merciful to sin, they were taking His lack of punishment as approval. They were thinking sin was okay. I could give you a lot of examples of this. Just for time's sake, I'm going to refer to this in Genesis chapter 4. God didn't kill Cain when he killed his brother Abel, but instead he placed a mark in his forehead and protected him. Later in that same chapter, in Genesis chapter 4, Cain said, or Lamech, who was the great, great, great grandson of Cain, Cain said unto his two wives, he says, I have uh, slain a man to my wounding and a young man to my hurt. That's old English terminology, but what this means is he killed a man in self-defense. And so therefore he thought his murder of a man was more justified than Cain's because his was self-defense. And so he said this in verse 24, If Cain shall be avenged sevenfold, truly Lamech seventy and sevenfold. You know what's wrong with that logic? God didn't say he was going to avenge Lamech seventy and sevenfold, but Lamech in his own mind felt more justified than Cain, than Cain was. He was comparing himself with somebody else who had already gotten by with murder, and so he says, man, I'm going to be 70 times more protected than what Cain was. He was making this mistake that is listed over in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, but they comparing themselves by themselves and measuring themselves among themselves are not wise. We aren't supposed to do this, but people do this all the time and say things like, if the hypocrites down there at church make it, I'll make it. The only thing wrong with that reasoning is that the hypocrites at church aren't going to make it. They aren't your standard. You aren't supposed to compare yourself with other people and think because Cain got by with murder, certainly I will. But see, that's what people were doing. And so because of this comparison, they were getting to a place to where they think, well, sin's really not that bad. And they were just allowing sin to run rampant in their life. And sin, even though God wasn't bringing His wrath on it, sin is a direct inroad of Satan into your life. Romans 6.16 says, Know ye not that to whom ye yield yourselves servants to obey, his servants ye are to whom ye obey, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness. Even if God doesn't judge your sin, Satan takes advantage of you because of sin. So even though God for the first 2,000 years wasn't bringing his wrath upon sin, he still wanted people not to live in sin And they were taking his lack of punishment as approval or acceptance. And so, as an afterthought, this wasn't the first thing God did. He waited nearly 2,000 years. He gave the law and he did bring punishment upon sin in similar way that we spank our kids. Not because we really are mad at them and want to hurt them, but we're giving them a physical thing that will deter them from doing it. You know, my mother used to tell me, if you cross that street without looking both ways, I'm going to spank you. And there was a time when I was a kid 
that I didn't look both ways to keep from getting hit by a car. I looked both ways to keep from getting hit by my mother. <laughs> but you know what? Eventually I've grown up and now I look both ways still, not because I'm afraid of my 92-year-old mother. If I had to, I could take her, praise God. But you know what? I'd do it because now I understand the real reason. But there was a period of time that it was fear of punishment that kept me from crossing a street without looking both ways. There was a period of time that it was the fact that you were going to be cursed and judged and punished by God, but now we've been set free and we should be able to walk in the fact that now God loves us and I live holy not in order to receive God's love, but because I already have it. And those are some strong statements, but I believe them to all be true.